Welcome to Enough Room, a music learning project with Symphony Nova Scotia, supported by TD Bank Group. Hi everyone, I'm Holly Matheson. I'm the music director at Symphony Nova Scotia. It's my huge pleasure today to be chatting to one of Canada's music kind of legends, Adrian Anantawan. Adrian, Thank you so much for joining me. It's such a pleasure to meet you uh, online and and talk about your work. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me. And what a lovely introduction. I think that uh, legendary is definitely a very humbling word uh, to use, <laughs> but hopefully parts of my story definitely do resonate not only with uh, my past, with uh, someone who has uh, a visible disability, but also as a Canadian who's working within this intersection of, of classical music and social justice. Yeah, wow, that's that's an amazing way to phrase it. Um, music and social justice, what an uh, intersection. Do you think all musicians should be? Do you think it actually is what music should be about? I think that when we're putting ourselves on stage as musicians, we are creating a story and we're not only sharing the narrative of the piece of music, but something of ourselves as well. Mm. So when we think about the nature of communities coming together, say for instance, like a, an orchestral concert, we might have a thousand people in the audience and you're there to be a representative of your unique identity. And for some people like myself, I was born missing my right arm it's much more visible what that difference might be. And I can share and use that as a platform to be able to continue doing my work. And at the same time, I think that music has a, a wonderful platform for us to really express those differences of diversity, as I was saying before, what it means to be a Canadian, but also one in which we are really rooting ourselves upon a common humanity so that we can work together, that we can communicate together. So I think just by very virtue of being on that stage and having a platform, for me at least, it really is a responsibility to not only make great art, but really use that art in some way as some form of advocacy. I was actually going to ask you about this because... Obviously, you have an extraordinary performance career, but you've also really devoted to teaching and outreach and um, mentoring. Was that always part of the plan for you, do you think? From an early age, did you know you wanted that to be part of your working process? Or is it something that's developed as you've gone on in your career? So I share this story because some folks asked me how early I wanted to become a teacher. And I think that came actually before uh, a lot of other things in life. I was in, in seventh grade and I remember my teacher telling me at one point, Adrian, you have a lot of patience, like working things out on yourself or like, or uh, helping other people sort of understand like math problems, for instance, it'd be really awesome if you could uh, be a teacher. And somehow that really stuck with me uh, throughout the rest of my life, like going through college. And I did the typical uh, music conservatory like mm -hmm. training. And as I was learning, you know, the Paganini Caprices or the Bach Sonatas and Partitas, there was always a, a side of my head that was really thinking, am I actually in the right space? Because a lot of people who go to conservatory, the outcome is to play in a symphony orchestra, to join a string quartet, 
or to be involved really primarily within that porn sphere. Uh, but I think that I already had sort of burgeoning dreams uh, to, to work in the education sphere. And it was a bit of a choice because as I was doing my master's in music, I was really thinking, okay, now I'm traveling, I'm performing, I'm touring and having all these incredible opportunities to share my music with everyone. And yet I felt like there was something a little bit missing in at least what would make me happy as a holistic person. So after graduating, I uh, joined uh, the Toronto Symphony for about a year or so and was sort of doing a little bit of, of touring aside from that. And, and at the same time, I was thinking, hey, you know what? I should like start thinking like I'm still relatively young in my early 20s. What can I do to like enhance my education and and think of ways that I could make a, a sustainable uh, career out of it? So I actually left the orchestra and took my uh, GREs, all these standardized tests to go back to school uh, in education, sort of really based on sort of a more research base and like really thinking about educational psychology, uh, thinking about the classroom setting from the environment uh, of the school itself to the state and federal levels of what I could do within the arts uh, to be able to provide a greater degree of accessibility uh, for people with disabilities uh, and improve uh, not only access but meaningful participation uh, within that sphere. So it definitely was uh, a risk uh, to sort of leave everything behind. But as musicians, we never really leave everything behind because I was still playing and and still perform just not to the same intensity as I was uh, up until then. And I think I've been able to find a, a nice balance now. Uh, I still uh, perform when I uh, can. And, and at the same time, I'm heavily involved in administration, uh, policy, and, and the advocacy sphere within special needs and music education, specifically figuring out ways that we can create inclusive environments for children with disabilities uh, to be able to interact in orchestral programs with their uh, typically able peers. So everything's sort of like all coming from different angles. And I think that this is a good time of life for me, at least, because I can use all of my training, all of my gifts uh, to be able to serve in a way that I hope makes an impact. That's wonderful. It, it reminded me, and I've been on my phone trying to find the tweet I saw. A few days ago, I saw this um, fellow artist online. He just said this wonderful tweet that just says, artistic excellence equals community. That's the tweet. That's it. Artistic excellence equals community. It's not you, you divert from excellence to go and do a community project. Actually, they are one and the same, and, and, and it is excellence. And that chimes totally with what you're saying. And also it's something that's come up so often in these conversations, but generally conversations in our sector in the last 18 months is, whoa, we've got these really weird values that we've inherited from about 300 years ago, <laughs> and they might not be fit for purpose. And, you know, something like COVID, where all of a sudden you don't have access to a brilliant acoustic and you might have to play outside. So you can't take your you know, $5 million Stradivarius out there, or you could, but that requires a shifting of your values and a shifting of whoever paid for it, their values. Um, and also with these extraordinary things like Black Lives Matter and this increasing acknowledgement of the effect of European um, 
settlement um, uh, or um, occupation and um, invasion, if, if, if we want to use the strongest term, two or three hundred years ago in places like Aotearoa, New Zealand, where I was born, and Canada, where you're from, there's this extraordinary kind of cognitive dissonance between our old world values as a classical musician and this new world that's opening up around us going, hang on a minute, that's really screwed up. <laughs> and you should be able to make music in a way that is not clashing with that. And I find that so interesting when we start to think about artists with disability and some of the the things that come up, say, with auditions. So today I've been sitting on in an audition panel and we actually had a meeting a month ago saying, now hang on a minute, for someone in a wheelchair, what do they need to know and what do they need to be commu- to have communicated to them that they're going to feel okay saying, no, actually I am going to audition after all because in my entire life I, it's very rare that I've come across any player coming into audition or any singer auditioning for an opera company with a visible disability. I know a lot of players actually do have hidden disabilities and they often feel they have to hide them intentionally because of, again, this this kind of misconception that artistic excellence is about some kind of um, ubermensch kind of (laughs) ideal. And it's wonderful to be able to have these conversations now. No, actually, there's absolutely no reason that half of the string section couldn't be in wheelchairs or using prosthetic limbs or partially sighted. We just need to know how to shift our values so that it works for everyone. When you were playing in in a section in Toronto, did did it ever come up that there were barriers to your playing or your participation that frustrated you? I think that I was in a very advantageous situation in which I was successful despite having a very visible disability. I think that more than anything else, and I think a lot of musicians with disabilities will say this, it's not really us that uh, is the biggest challenge yes it's really people's conceptions of what you can do and what your your ceiling might be yeah i think that for me the the only real challenge uh, was maybe boeings and having to do something slightly different in in service of the music and I think that took a little bit of time for me to really find an authenticity about too, because mm. there is such a visual element, which is quite compelling of all the string players yeah. going in unison and really having this uh, unified sound. But if I can do a different Boeing and come up with the same quality of sound, does that make me any different than whoever else is playing within the orchestra? And I think that I really had to accept that because there were times in orchestra where I would like, you know, hold my bow for like, you know, a very long amount of time and just almost like pretend that I was, oh yeah, I can totally make a sound at the tip of the bow at a very uh, high degree of, of angle at the string in which I can't really produce a sound because my bow isn't straight. Mm. And oh, interesting. So the bow is actually a different shape. Uh, well, at least the curvature in which like I... Uh, hit the contact point of the violin. So ideally, you always want the bow to be perpendicular to the Mm -hmm. string, and you sort of make a really nice sound. So I'm going to do the same type of stroke, but I'm going to go all the way to the tip. 
and you can sort of hear that it's not there's not as much contact mm-hmm. uh, and the bow is a little bit more angled so for me in those situations if i have to hold a very long note i just switch the bow and thank goodness we're an orchestra where we can call it staggered bowing anyways and yeah. and i just had to be okay with the idea that authenticity to who i was within this ensemble was more important than the optics of trying to look the same as everyone else and with the realization that if someone is judging me based on wow his bowing looks completely different then that's that's where you're talking about the culture shift yeah. i think for me one of the advantages of why i loved playing the violin after doing so many other activities was because i was being judged as someone who was missing a limb or someone who had some type of deficit and yet when you close your eyes or you're like behind a screen for an audition people didn't hear that or really identify you in that way so i in some ways used music as a way to really find that true self that really was able to connect to other people in a way that i could navigate the world uh as a complete human mhm absolutely and have you found that along the way colleagues have been supportive of that i mean i know for instance that you've you've done a lot of work with peter unjen who uh, i used to assist at the royal scottish national <laughs> orchestra and he's such a sweetheart and of course he used to be music director at toronto symphony but you also worked with him at yale is that right absolutely and and that's the wonderful thing i think that i've been very blessed with a great support network of teachers like peter unjen to my first teacher who would take me on like my parents had to literally like knock on the door of several teachers <laughs> just to like get myself through the door and uh, there are a few teachers who didn't want to disappoint me they only saw this certain ceiling of okay well yeah you can sort of play basic notes but we don't want to disappoint you you should play the trumpet or something that you can actually hold and there's like a very high ceiling because you can hold it with one hand but that wasn't what i found beautiful uh mm-hmm. not to say the trumpet isn't great <laughs> yeah. it's just i love the violin uh and that's what i wanted to play so i remember the teacher who did accept me her name was peggy mcguire from mississauga and she said okay don't worry about the bow we didn't even have the bow adaptation for me to hold the bow for the first month or so and she just got me to left hand pits everything left hand pizzicato <laughs> in which I would use my my pinky finger and I'll just demonstrate. And then I put to play a note, I would use one finger and still use my pinky. To... And that was already something that ironically set me up for success because all of a sudden I was working on an extremely advanced technique having to I was going to say like most kids wouldn't be anywhere near being able to do that when they start. Yes, but innovation and excellence is uh, born out of necessity sometimes and that was the only way that I could make a sound so I was going to do it and I was going to push myself maybe in a different way but in a way that I think that uh, a lot of children have the capacity to do to find resilience in that challenge if that's the only way that you can do it you don't really understand there's an easier way or a yes. more practical way mm-hmm. to do it uh and i think that's permeated not only through the violin but the rest of my life too i think that's quite interesting actually i i don't know if this is being part of the discussion um in canada but 
certainly through my work, um, I'm on the, the board for Formidability, which is an opera company all about starting with what we would normally call accessibility for, for artists with disabilities and actually starting the creative process with that and then building around it so that it's not an add-on at the end. And my colleague there, Joanne Roughton-Arnold, we were having this discussion about, you know, when lockdown first kicked in and all of a sudden people were using this strange thing called Zoom that they'd never heard of <laughs> and working remotely. And, and Joe was just like, we've been doing this for years. It's called living with a disability. Like we should be like getting hired for maximum rates to, to be um, consultants at the moment and let you all know how we've been doing this because it's just part and parcel of our lives to have to adapt to a, a, some sort of barrier somewhere along the way and be creative. And um, so many of the artists that I've worked with who work with disability, they're so creative and also completely independent, fiercely independent, far more so often than sort of rank-and-file players who will be extremely upset if their favourite biscuit is not being put in the, the right part of the tea table for the tea break, and you know. So I think it does, you're absolutely right. Do you, do you think even that um, there is something that the, the mainstream, if you like, um, classical music world can be learning from artists who have been working all this time with disability that actually we should all be doing it. It shouldn't just be that these adaptations or, or the flexibility or creativity is happening out of necessity, but actually it should be something we can all be learning from. Yes, I think that risk-taking and creativity and innovation sometimes is a spur-of-the-moment light bulb that goes off, and then that's great, you have something new. But a lot of the times inspiration and creativity is a practice and a discipline that you have to repeat in many facets of your life. And you have to embrace the discomfort of being uncomfortable and put yourself in a situation of humility and learning. I can give you a very specific example, like you were mentioning the Black Lives Matter movement and that tension that we have within the classical music world, I think, yes, we are engaging in these conversations like we haven't in any time of history at this moment. And yet at the same time, there is and will be inevitably a resistance to the way of thinking, how do we deconstruct, decolonize and do things that are uncomfortable that are disruptive and might be challenging in, mm -hmm. in a antagonistic way to other people. Because I think once you're trying to create equity and justice, uh, some people feel like personally they have something to lose as a result. Mm -hmm. So what are we doing as artists to bridge that empathy? And really, as you were just saying, it's value shifting but also for us to collectively gain a larger sense of what our common values are. Mm -hmm. We want music to embrace something new, to be able to live beyond us, to be able to express something that is at the same time based upon sort of this common humanity that we've had forever throughout you know, our existence on this planet, but it also embraces our evolution and where we want to go or where we are 
already going uh, as a culture, as a species. And I think about this in a very literal sense because I think that classical music at its best has always been a culture of disruption and not one of conservation. And we forget that mm. because we think that Beethoven is now classical music and it's like, something that's been done in almost conventional way that you would place, you know, one of his symphonies in a concert program. But as we both know, that was not so mm-hmm. when he was composing. Uh, and this idea of just like putting something out and and having people wrestle with something new is something that we're doing to this day as well. And I think the amazing thing of what we do as classical musicians is, yes, we're doing a lot of things in the present, but we don't really know what the impact of the new thing that we're doing is going to, in 250 years, be you know, that Beethoven symphony, because it just touched on something so profoundly universal that it lives and, and it continues to breathe and, and be celebrated in a way that we have as we've uh, celebrated composers of the past. Uh, so it's really finding that balance, uh, like being able to understand that what we come from is a tradition and and something that requires an honoring of, and at the same time, really celebrating those risk-taking elements within those spaces to really push ourselves forward at the same time. That's wonderful. I mean, this is sort of where that well, it really is where the title of the series came from, Enough Room. You know, we, we bandied a, a lot of titles around for what to call this, but at the end of the day, at the, what, the point we were hoping to make and what we wanted to explore was the idea of if you open the door and let someone into the arts, it doesn't mean someone else has to leave to make room for them. And that's, um, that's the same whether we're talking about who's on stage, who's in an administration, who's in the audience, who's funding it, who's on the board, you know, actually... The more people entered into the room, the better the noise is, basically, um, is our feeling. And it's so interesting you bring up Beethoven. Quite often this comes up as um, anyone in the office at no- Symphony Nova Scotia will tell you my, my general thought is anything but Beethoven, not because I don't like Beethoven, but because it's just too easy and obvious and it's, it's too comfortable. For, for us to play and for the audience to listen to. Or at the least, if we are going to do Beethoven, then let's say something intelligent about him, something interesting, like what's being written today that we can trace directly as a, a line of inheritance. So that's I, I find that really interesting. But also this idea that what music has come to represent for us in the classical world as an audience or as a conductor or player, this comfortable thing of something I like and something I'm paying for, it's a really modern idea, isn't it? I mean, music was something that you did primarily and, and it was something you did with your family or with your friends or with your colleagues and it was something you argued about. You might stop in the middle of a, a movement and argue about, well, why, why is that repeat there? Is that, is that good? Is that bad? You know, it was something to untie as a, as a group of people and, again, that word community comes back. It wasn't a jewel to place on a pedestal. It was a model of, of living to be looked at and examined as part of a group, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think about it now in contrast, because we do see elements of that within society. Like I think of like literally about sports, 
And like you can have like 24-7 news channels that are debating one trade between <laughs> two teams uh, in the NHL, for instance, or the NBA. And I think that spirit is still there, but it's something that we need to recapture in some way within our world, within the sphere of classical music in particular. And the first step, as you were just saying, is is opening the door and making it feel uh, accessible. Obviously, that's not the the only step, and and yet is the easiest one because uh, there are going to be a lot of, of of challenges to untangle once you do sort of open the door and sort of bring people into that space. Uh, say, for instance, as you were just mentioning, if you, someone comes in with a disability. Yes, open the door, but then what is your actual space? <laughs> Yes, what to exactly. be like in order to make them feel like they belong. Yeah, absolutely. And also that we now have an entire financial ecosystem built around all of the assumptions that we've developed around who plays, who conducts, who sings, who composes, who who pays for seats, you know. So it's, as you say, there are, it, it opens several cans of worms, um, but it's ultimately it, it must be such an important and, and fruitful and kind of fertile time ahead of us if we do um, artistically and and socially and culturally. Absolutely. It's messy, but all growth is. There's never been a linear progression of like things just getting better and better on a straight curve or a line. I think progress is always incremental and it can feel very small and minute sometimes, for, especially for people who are really engaged in the practice of trying to create larger systematic and, and social change. And there are going to be instances in which there are drops and we sort of go backwards mm-hmm. rather than moving forward. So it's really thinking about what we're doing collectively for collective impact and also what we're doing in the aggregate and making sure that when we do find successes, that we find ways to celebrate and find ways to replicate those models as much as knowing when we've made mistakes, which inevitably happen again. And I think about a music metaphor in particular. It's like my teacher always used to tell me, it's like when you've made a mistake in a passage or a wrong note, something's out of tune, that's your opportunity to make something the most beautiful in tune, just the best possible thing that you can have in your expression. And and when I think about it like that, and just an entire sort of life philosophy, it means that these mistakes and, and so-called failures that we have are really gifts that allow us to find ways to adapt and, and innovate, but we have to put ourselves into those positions and accept that they're just part and parcel of progress. Again, I think that's something we, that gets drilled out of us as classical musicians. So much of our training and culture is about perfection, Be, being ashamed if you make a mistake or don't know it well enough. I, and I, I really hope that all of these things that we're discussing and that we've all been discussing around the world in the last 18 months will have a positive effect on the way we teach. And certainly someone like yourself teaching, um, I, I imagine this is in your, your mindset as well. I remember when I was at Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, I did a fellowship there as a conductor and I I had this feeling because I was a little bit older to be doing it, probably five, ten years older than other people would be doing that. And I had this sort of uh, very entitled sort of frustration that, oh, I should be out actually doing this professionally and, and I'm, I should be doing this and I should be doing that. And 
um, why am I still a student and and why aren't I good enough yet? And and I had this wonderful session with a guest conductor who, who actually he was about the same age as me, and he said, "For goodness sake, you're so lucky! You've got an entire year to make mistakes." And he was like, "Just break it every time you're sitting with players. Break it completely. Make it completely fall apart and put it back together and see how." far you can push things because if you were sitting in front of an, a professional orchestra right now you wouldn't be able to to take that risk and it was such an amazing message such an amazing lesson because of course I naively had been thinking I have to try and impress him I have to try and impress people so that I can prove that I'm good enough to do this completely bonkers career <laughs> and it was it was so freeing and much much healthier mindset does that come into to play with your own teaching and, and the work you're doing in that way, talking to, to kids about or to young musicians about how do we deal with this idea of virtuosity and excellence in a healthy way? Absolutely. And, and I love that story that you just shared. And I'm attaching myself to this word like being able to make mistakes also means that you have freedom. And, and that freedom can lead to imagination and change and, and ways of thinking that have not been done before. And I also want to think about the idea of perfection and, and excellence. I think that perfection is obviously uh, a destination and it's some type of ideal that we want to strive for. And yet that's not the same as, as mastery, I think. I think mastery is this process of continually reaching. So say, for instance, I play a great concert <laughs> and I'm only as good as my last performance. If I sit down and do nothing, I'm going to regress as a player. <laughs> so just this constant process of striving and reaching and, and playing scales or learning new repertoire you're never really ever reaching a destination. I think that this idea of, of mastery is, is one that allows us to continually reflect within ourselves, guided by sort of this overall mission of what we want to accomplish in life, of what we need to do. Um, and it's hard work. <laughs> uh, what type of work that we need to do in order to uh, not only sort of maintain where we are, but sort of reach for, for something else. Because I know that for some, if you think that success sort of looks like, okay, I've achieved this milestone, well, you know what happens? It's like just the next thing sort of happens. And we know this sort of going all the way from like students to a certain level of profession and to, you know, other levels too. There's always something more uh, to strive for. So it's really just figuring out and accepting where you are. And as you were saying, not necessarily trying to prove, uh, because I think that just being an individual in, in it of ourselves is valuable to the world. It's really how do we amplify what we can share with as many people? How do we share our story? How do we share our unique vantage point of how we see the world in our brief time here that also improves the lives of others? And I do try to instill this uh, within uh, my students. Some of them are extremely young, like the programming that I'm working with can be as young as, as first, second grade. 
for instance. And it's really finding structured ways for us to make meaning of our successes, as I say, as much as our, our failures and to destigmatize the idea or word of failure to say that it means that you're a bad person mm. <laughs> sort of deal because no growth can happen from there. It's really trying to inculcate within our students a, a care for themselves and a belief in the intrinsic value of their own identity. And I actually do think it's easier for, for younger kids to express that than as we sort of find our ways into systems through high school and university, we have to sort of fit uh, within certain boxes. So how do we really continually encourage that? How do we continue to share stories, you know, mentors and teachers and people who are in the field to say, I'm only this version of success because of all these things that came before me. And I think it is really important for us to be vulnerable about that, especially people who are in positions of leadership uh, to be able to, to model that way for our younger uh, kids. And also for our colleagues, um, our own age and older, you know, often I'm sort of in the middle or on the younger side of the people in the room when I'm on the podium. And I, at various points, I've had to deal with anxiety as a performer. And I remember once a, a leader saying to me, oh, you just have to develop a thick skin. You've got to have a hard shell to do your job. And I thought, no, I don't want a hard shell. (laughs) That's the opposite of who I am. I would be faking it, number one, but also it goes against everything I want for my own growth as a human. Setting music aside, that's my job. But for me as a human being and as a soul, I I don't want to develop a a hard shell. Um, But it is, you, you, you... the, the modelling we do, even for our professional colleagues, I think is important as is, is showing, no, you really are allowed to be vulnerable in this position. And that's really challenging for some uh, players, I think, to to see that in front of them as a potential mirror because, of course, then they it, it projects to themselves and they think, can I do that or should I do that or am I allowed to do that? But it's it's interesting also you're talking about authenticity and I was thinking about young conductors and and also some old conductors but certainly young conductors I in some of the teaching and examining I've done every now and then I find myself thinking yep you you look just like a conductor I'll give you points for that you know you you you've got the, the expression on your face and you've got the moves that you've picked up and and you you're saying all the the words that one would expect a conductor to say and I feel like you've not actually stepped into the room yet as yourself, as your own authentic self. And I've seen it time and time again, and it's issues, any identity issues for people, whether it be a conductor who's insecure about the way they look or their weight, if it's someone who is feeling awkward because of gender issues or sexuality or anything, identity that's kind of jangling louder in their psyche than for whatever reason at this point in their life than one would hope it would for the for their own um, happiness and contentedness. It's it's what we see on the podium and it and it blocks so many things. And this thing of becoming comfortable with with oneself, I sort of feel like for certainly for conductors and probably opera directors, but maybe players as well, 
maybe part of our training should be a dose of, you know, a good course of psychotherapy or something to to develop that part of ourselves in tandem with our music making because I think often that personal development for a lot of people does get um, deferred or ignored in preference of this other very extreme type of development as a musician. When you speak of, of like having a hard shell, for instance, you're, yes, protecting yourself in some ways, but you can't really see out of that shell yes, <laughs> either. Yeah. And I think that it's important to understand like why certain behaviors might benefit us. And maybe that's one way of working within a system, developing a career and, and just surviving. And yet there comes a point in everyone's career where we're looking past that or have to. How are we actually thriving? How are we changing? How are we growing in a way that isn't perpetuating the status quo? Yes, there might be elements to that status quo that are, are beneficial to us. But as we were just talking uh, about earlier, it leaves so many people out as well. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's always going to have to be that type of self-awareness of where you are within uh, that structure. Like for me, uh, yes, I have uh, a disability that is very visible, but as you were saying, there are a lot of other invisible disabilities that musicians will not disclose. But I also am very aware of my privilege of being a male, for instance, and how I navigate through these waters in which I'm not aware in which these things are making uh, advantages for me that are inherently uh, not equal or or not Mm -hmm. just in some ways. Uh, So it really is, no matter where we are, just understanding that we need to interrogate ourselves and and cast aside the judgment that just because you are a beneficiary of a system and you have to acknowledge that, that doesn't make you a bad person, but where you go from there and how you contend and wrestle with that so that you are really thinking not only about yourself, but people who are uh, in your community. As you just said, excellence is community. And the only way that we're going to be able to get there is by understanding our place within those communities for better and also for worse. Yeah, it's, it's coming up in, at the moment also in a sort of a political way. If you don't mind going down this road, it's it's a grim one. But COVID passports, because this is not just an, an issue for us as musicians, but it's also these are issues for our audiences. For instance, there's this incredible woman over here in the UK who is, uh, she does British Sign Language, and she signs music. She is just incredible. It is like watching a virtuosic dancer, and you can watch her body and know which piece she's playing. You know, it's just extraordinary. So it opens up concerts to people who are non-hearing. They can experience something incredibly powerful and emotional through their eyes while, while the person next to them is, is experiencing it through their ears. It's tremendous. So there are a lot of people in our audience for whom um, there are barriers that they may or may not disclose, or there might be people who would love to come to concerts or go to operas, but the, for whatever reason, the way they need access to it is not given. And this has been coming up a lot here in the UK in the news about COVID passports and the way governments and organisations are going to reopen up and um, give safe access back to people once you've had your two vaccinations and you've got your passport or to show you've had 
COVID recently, therefore you've got enough antibodies that you'll be safe and, you know, that sort of thing. But it's it comes at the cost of people who cannot get vaccinated for health reasons or who are immunoresistant uh, to vaccination or, you know, all, all sorts of hosts of problems, including pregnant people, for instance, who have been advised medically to not uh, get the vaccination. So they're excluded from the reopening of things. Have you been thinking about this in your own work and how this this is going to impact people? Or has is, is this come up in Canada, the idea of COVID passports and the it, it, it opens it up for a majority, but puts this very hard defining line uh, between people who don't have access to vaccination. Yeah, I think you've described uh, a tension that will exist in, in many other spheres. How do you respect everyone's individual liberties? And at the same time, how are we taking care of our community as a whole? And I mean, it's it goes down to a very sort of tension between utilitarianism and like, you know, the greatest good for as many people as possible. But if you're sort of following that line, the majority is that's a position of power and, and can also be a position of privilege as well mm. uh, in, in ways that the ones who cannot advocate for themselves are going to experience injustice or inequality or uh, some form of oppression. And, and I think every society has to contend with this essential problem and wrestle with it in its own way. I think that within uh, the political sphere, that's one thing that I think that is complicated in its own world. And hopefully we do have folks who, who find... Um, that arena, as we call it, that place where they can actually really get some work done. I think of it primarily within the the cultural sphere and and thinking about, again, what benefits the most amount of people right now within the classical world is exactly what's been done and perpetuated for years. And as you were just saying earlier, there are people who may not necessarily even want to enter the building and space because they feel unsafe or they feel even just on a more human level, the music does not reflect who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's something that we have to be open to because as a classical musician, my first defense mechanism would be, of course, you know, Mozart has something to say to everyone, this universal uh, universalism sort of deal. And yet we have to really understand the context historically and socially in which some of these attitudes are, are created and, and for good reason as well. Mm. So how do we really create a, an open dialogue with as many communities as possible that benefit our greater good, but also respects all of our individual voices? So I, I, Ibram X. Kendi, a great writer on anti-racist work, talks about we're not the same. None of us are the same, but everyone is equal mm. in our differences. And, and how do we continually strive for amplifying that sense of belonging and still retain uh, our individual rights and freedoms and, and liberties? Uh, that is going to be the question, <laughs> I think, confronting us as we continue to emerge out of COVID. 
And at the same time, COVID is this opportunity because so much has been deconstructed. Uh, we have a real opportunity to be intentional of how we're rebuilding. That's wonderful. I think that is probably the perfect place to end this discussion. <laughs> Unless there's anything else, Adrian, that you want to bring up. I think that this was a lovely conversation. I feel like we could speak for hours. But thank you for having me on the show. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me and for um, bringing your wisdom and insight and thoughtfulness and uh, generosity. I'm so sad people can't see us on screen in this podcast because <laughs> literally Adrian has just been smiling like a sunbeam the whole way through. <laughs> it's so amazing. You, <laughs> you, you bring such joy and positivity and and not in a superficial way. It, it's from somewhere very deep and experiential. Um, and I'm so grateful to you for coming and, and chatting to me today and, and sharing all of this with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.